information you can trust, stories you can relate to, and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. This is a Battle Mountain Podcast from the archives. Hey everyone, this is Jeff Harris. And this is Hannah Hill. So today we have Jeff Harris with us. And Jeff is actually one of my good friends from when I lived in San Diego and shot archery in San Diego. And uh, he's a guy that really helped teach me a lot as I was getting into the sport. Um, so, Jeff, thank you for, for joining the podcast and chatting with me a little bit about everything in archery. Well, thanks for having me on here. Uh, so I guess to get started, I know you pretty well, but everyone else doesn't. So do you want to kind of give a brief background of maybe who you are and, and how you got into tournament archery? Sure. I, uh, again, my name is Jeff Harris, and I grew up in California. Um, always have hunted ever since I was a young kid. And then uh, I'd say probably when I was about 10, 11 years old, I started shooting my dad's bow in the backyard. He would kind of play around with it. And then uh, kind of put it down, never really got too involved with it. And then after joining the Navy, I returned back to San Diego and was looking for something to do. And so I brought my bow down there and started shooting at the local archery ranges. And then uh, one of the shops, uh, employees told me to go shoot a 3D, and I did, and I was kind of hooked from there on. It, I think San Diego has a lot of people like that, because that's how I got into the tournaments there as well. I was shooting at the range, and one person said, hey, you should do a tournament, and they kind of suck you in that way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I wish I remembered who it was too, because now I now I'd recognize them if I went back to that day. But I don't I don't know who it was. Um, but so, anyways, you said you like shooting 3D. Is that is that kind of your main tournament archery focus? Yeah, I mean, I do dabble around in dots uh, from time to time, whether it be field or animal rounds, hunt rounds, stuff like that. But my real passion is for shooting foam. That's for sure. <laughs> And what what about foam do you like as opposed to paper and dots, things like that? Well, for me, um, I like unmarked 3D, you know, or unknown as they call it on the East Coast. But uh, I like the I like the I like the aspect of judging the targets and adding that into the shooting. It's one thing, you know, you can tell a guy that's 20 yards, and most people that have been shooting for any amount of time can hit that. Um, but then if you don't tell them it's 20 yards or 30 yards, then then it's a whole new ball game, and I like that aspect of it. I also like uh, – I, I feel that personally I aim better on 3D targets. I think it's a mental game of not trying to hold the pin in the middle of the dot, but more so just kind of letting it float around where I know it needed to hit. And for me, it, it seems to hold more steady. And I, I enjoy that aspect obviously when I'm looking through my scope. So when you're so, 
it's hard for me because I'm a paper shooter. You know, that's that's what I prefer. And so it's hard for me to think about it being easier to aim on a foam target. Because for me, every foam target, you know, there's so many different animals. There's different styles of foam targets, you know, different companies that make them. And they have different rings on them. And sometimes there's the 12 ring and the 14 ring. Sometimes it's just 5, 8, 10. It really depends on the company. So when there's so much variety of of you know, foam out there, so so many different foam targets. How do you really practice knowing where to aim on those? Well, it is it is something that you definitely have to practice. Uh, and I think, like, for instance, I just moved over to the East Coast in Maryland, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of ASA-style tournaments that I'm going to attend from here on out. But in the past, shooting in San Diego – they used more of an IBO system without counting the uh, X's uh, and 11. And so most all of those targets were like the Reinhardt targets where you got the small, you know, the small X, the big 10, the vitals, and then the the body of the animal um, scoring 10.85. And so you, after you shoot those animals enough, you kind of figure out where it is where the X ring is located in relation to that animal. Um, and then for the, for the targets that you don't see all the time, that does definitely add uh, a new element to it. Specifically, I can think of the big bear shoot up uh, with the Cherry Valley bow hunters, which is a phenomenal tournament those guys put on every year, but they don't have traditional scoring rings. They have a 10 ring, that is approximately the size of, say, a tennis ball. And then around that is a rectangular that is drawn on and is approximately a half inch to the left and a half inch to the right of that tennis ball. And then there's a little bit of up and down movement. But the but the element that that adds is, is if you go an inch left or an inch right, you're now a five instead of an eight. So Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's difficult, but again, that's that's what makes it fun to me. Um, but it's you know it's learning each target, and I'm sure if you were to talk to guys like Levi Morgan or Chance Bobeth, they have exactly where the twelve ring is memorized on almost every target on that ring. So they're not so much, and you know. They use arrow holes and stuff like that to aim off of. And I kind of do the same thing. When I step up to a target, I'll look at it through my binoculars and try to identify a darker mark or a lighter mark or maybe it's a shadow that something's casting on, you know, a, a tree branch is casting on the target. Try to find something that gives you an indication of where to hold your pen when you're looking through your scope. And if it's not there, if it's like a white target that's fresh and new, then it's just you have to go up from the leg or, you know, so far from an indent in the muscle structure of the target. Whatever you can use to help you identify where that ring is. And that's what I try to do. Yeah, I I feel like that's the process I have to use as well because, like you said, a lot of the pros are the people that are out there shooting 
these kinds of targets over and over and over again, <clears throat> they've been doing it for years, they have it exactly memorized. They know what it looks like and where those rings are. Um, and there's also, you know, I've seen archers with the little, you, you call them cheat sheets. It's not cheating, but the little cheat sheets that show all of the different 3D targets and exactly where the rings are on them and what the sizes are of the targets and things like that. Um, but I think I, I, would, I use the same strategy you do of look at the animal, memorize it, find that crease, that shadow, something like that, and then the difficulty then is finding it again through your scope, especially if you're using a lens. So when you're shooting 3D, do you, do you use any power lens on your scope? I do. I've shot uh, four power since I started shooting open class, and I've played around with the six. Um, it's just too much magnification for me, and the the thing that I like about running a four-power lens, for me personally, is I don't have to run a clarifier. Mm. And so if for, you know, dust and rain, that's one less thing that I have to worry about. Um, so I've been trying to put off running a clarifier for as long as I possibly can. As long as my eyes hold out, I'm going to continue to run that <laughs> setup. So. Huh. And so you you think the six power is too much for 3D, at least in your experience? Uh, well, for me it is, absolutely. And I think, you know, the biggest thing about archery is finding what works for you. And for me personally, one, it's uh, I have to run a clarifier, like I said, if I want to run a six power lens. And two, more importantly, is it just shows me a little bit too much movement in my scope. And therefore, I, I think I try to overcorrect by holding it steadier instead of just letting it do its thing. And then that, in turn, makes it even more shaky. So mm -hmm. for me personally, I like, the, I like the advantage of the magnification that you get from the four-power lens without the, seeing the movement that you get from the six. Got it. Well, it makes sense. And so... Um, when you're out there shooting a tournament and you're having to judge yardage, I know that there are a lot of different strategies for judging yardage. And I'm terrible at 3D, so I use about seven different strategies all at the same time and hope that out of those seven I end up with a somewhat decent guess at the yardage. Um, so what what's your specific strategy when you see a target and are trying to figure out yardage? The very first thing I do when I walk up to a stake is I look directly at the animal. I don't look at the ground in between. I don't look at anything else. I look directly at the animal. And what I found is that I can usually get in some kind of a ballpark by doing that, whether about a 10-yard increment. And all I'm doing, what I'm trying to do is trying not to let outside factors influence my decision on that. So for me, I walk up, I look at the target, and I get a roundabout number. I usually say something like, you know, I think that's 35 yards. From then, I will, some people call it throwing bags or some people call it flipping a pole, but I'll find 10 yards on the ground. And then, again, find 20 yards and 30 and so on and so forth until I get to the target. And then usually by the time I do that, I'm within probably three yards of judging the target. From then, it just be, from then on, it just becomes more of a 
picking out, you know, like a tree or a bush or something that's in between you and the target and trying to refine that number. So say there's a tree between you and the target, and I go, well, I know that tree is for fact 21 yards because I feel like I can judge pretty solid up to 30 without having to really think about it too much. So I find a tree that's, that's you know, 21 yards, and then I go, well, from that tree to the target is another 10 yards. So now I know I'm sitting at 31 yards. And using all three of those slash four of those uh, processes, I usually can get to where I'm within a yard and a half yard sometimes. And it seems to work out pretty good for me. And then there's just days where you walk up and, and you're just praying and wishing. <laughs> and so then on top of that, do you, let's say you're in a group, shooting in a group of four, right? And you're the last shooter on the line for that target. If you guesstimate that yardage, let's say you're like, yep, that's a 53-yard shot. But then you look up there and everyone else is shooting it low. Do you do you then second guess yourself and say, you know what, maybe it looks 53, but it's actually, you know, it, it's actually a little bit longer than that because everyone else hit it low? Or do you, once you have your number, do you just go with that and trust it? Well, I will tell you that more often than not, that's going to hurt you if you if you do let that persuade you, because you don't know if the group that you're with if they're making good shots, being that the pin actually was in the middle of the tin ring when the bow went off, right? Right. You're you're taking that for you're you're hoping that that is what happened, but you don't know that for a fact. So if if you go up there and you see, say you're like I said, group of four, and you see three arrows that are high, well maybe that there's there's possibly something going to that. The other thing that you have to look at is who you're shooting with. If I'm shooting like a, a buddy of mine, Mark, in in uh, San Diego there, if I'm shooting with him and I see him do something like that, then I'll take it into consideration because I've shot enough with him to know that he's pretty darn good at judging yardage, and if he makes a mistake like that, then there's probably something to it. If it's just some random people that I get paired up with who I don't know from Adam, then Generally speaking, I'm not going to really let that judge, you know, or influence my judgment because, again, A, I don't know if they judged it wrong. B, I don't know if they made a good shot. And I just don't want that to influence what I'm doing at all. I think that's a smart way to do it. You know, if you know the people, you you have a lot more more to base your decision on based off of what your experience is shooting with them in the past. Sure. And I, I will tell you one thing that I, that I do with that, and I don't know, people laugh at me, people think it's crazy, but if I'm, say, you know, the third shooter, I will listen to the arrows as other people are shooting and it doesn't it you know and what i mean is from the time their bow breaks to the time that the arrow impacts the target and i'm not counting it i'm just kind of listening to it and and if you pay attention to this when you're out there practicing you can start to hone in on that you know when you're standing at 30 yards you'll start to listen and you can hear how long it's taking your arrow to impact and so again this is something that can hurt you, but 
if you're in a group of people, so like ASA, right? ASA has a speed limit. So generally speaking, everybody's shooting about the speed, same speed on their bow. Yeah, everyone wants um, to be as high as possible without breaking that speed limit. Right. So you know that most people are shooting in that 290 range for ASA. You know, most guys are, and I'm sure most of the girls are getting up there now with the advances in bows and stuff. You know, the poundage doesn't have to be as high. And those lighter 3D arrows and stuff, it's making it pretty comparable. Mm-hmm. But so, like, when I'm shooting with, again, I'll reference Mark, I know generally what he's what speed he's shooting, and he does as, as well as mine. But I can I will use his arrow if I'm just not really sure. I when he shoots, I'll listen to that, and it'll give me an indication of where that target is. And it's not very accurate, but it just gives me an idea. If I'm sitting there looking at it, and I'm going, that's 32 yards, and then the shot breaks and it takes a minute for that arrow to get there, I might rethink my process and be like, okay, what am I missing here? Because that was too long for 30 yards, you know? Yeah. Again, not exact science, but it's something that if you pay attention to while you're out shooting on the range, you know, at your different distances, how long your arrow's taking to impact, it will help you out there when you when you hear other people shooting if you're not the first one up. If you're the first one up, then... You're kind of SOL on that. <laughs> yeah. So it's really a matter of finding, you know, pulling little pieces from, you know, little bits of evidence and, and things that contribute to your overall guesstimate on yardage um, from multiple different things. So arrows that are already on the target, if you're familiar with who you're shooting with, or time it takes the arrow to reach the target, or, you know, what you're observing in, in distance to the target and to make your initial guess. So really putting all of that together and then coming up with your final guess. Yeah, for sure. And then there's other little things that you have to take into consideration, too, which is like, uh, you know, if your target's back in the shade, it's going to look different than it would if it's out in the sun. I've noticed that in uh, my travels, especially when I went out and shot the Arizona 3D circuit this year, which was a completely different uh, topographic design than I'm used to shooting. (laughs) And so you could see a lot more of the ground. And and what I noticed is if I could say that there's like a small incline running up to the target to where you can see all of that ground, then I typically overjudge the target. And Mm -hmm. so I shoot high on it because I can see all of the ground and I think it's longer than it is. And, you know, vice versa. If you can't see all of the ground, say that there's a sloping hill that goes down to the target and you can't quite see over it, then typically you'll underjudge it because you can't see all of the ground in between you and the target, and so you end up shooting low on that target. So if you start paying attention to things like that, it'll let you know, hey, you know, I think this is 45, but I also can't see all of the ground, so maybe it's a bit further than I'm thinking it is. So just little tricks like that that you learn the longer you shoot. And is this all stuff that you've picked up just from from practice and tournaments, or do you also, do you go out there with a range finder, make a guess range, see how far off you were, and do that over and over again? When I first started shooting 3Ds and I really wanted to get into it, I wore a range finder on my hip 24-7. And I know that sounds... <laughs> Probably geeky as heck, but I did. It's not 
geeky to an archer. <laughs> right, I know, yeah. I guess target audience, right? Yeah. But I I would do that and if I you know, if I was if I was sitting somewhere and waiting on somebody, I could always just sit there and, you know, ring street signs or judge, you know, judge road cones or whatever, it doesn't matter. The more you do it, it's like anything, the more practice you get at it, the better you'll be. Um, and I think with yardage judging, it's it's not, unless you're a hunter or an archer, it's not something that you grow up doing unless, okay, like the one instance I know of is, you know, John Dudley from Knock On TV, he always talks about he was a football player, so he can judge 10, yard, 10 yards really well because that was the distance of a first down. Yeah. But... You know, generally speaking, people don't grow up judging yardage. They have no reason to. So mm-hmm. it's it's something that you have to train yourself to do, and the only way to do that is to do it. So, again, I walked around with a rangefinder for several months and just ranging anything anytime I had time to do it. After a while... I think that, that that helps you to a certain extent, but then the, the other aspect of it is knowing the targets because judging a street sign that's 30 yards away over concrete is not the same as judging a wolf target at 30 yards over, you know, sagebrush. Absolutely. So, yeah, you just got to get to, you got to, you got to find, you got to, you definitely have to get out there and shoot some 3Ds. And the biggest thing that everybody always says is, oh, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. You're never going to be ready until you actually go out there and shoot them. <laughs> right? Right. I agree. I'm pretty sure the first tournament I ever shot was a 3D. Um, right. And, Me too. Yeah. And all you need, all you need is a bow arrows and then something to carry your arrows with it could even be your back pocket of your jeans but yep. that's that's pretty much it <laughs> yep and I rem- the first tournament i went attitude. to oh yeah a good attitude absolutely and i was with a group archers are very friendly and i remember the first tournament there at balboa park i was just blown away because i'm there like clueless about what's going on and i was in a group with jason Knoll. And so for those of you who don't know the San Diego area, area Jason Knoll is one of the better shooters there. Um, been in the in archery community for a long time, shoots freestyle. And I'm sitting there with my bow and, and my, you know, my cheap pre-fletched arrows and a cheap quiver on my bow. And he's there moving weights around on his long stabilizers. And I was just like, oh, my God, what did I get into? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, even still, everyone's so friendly. It's not, it's not overwhelming at all. You know, everyone helps you out, tells you, oh no, this is where you want to aim, and and um, you know, when you're a new archer, I feel like they'll help you figure out where the rings are on the targets and all that. Yeah, um, sure. And well, I then, noticed that it's been a great, great community of people. Um, you know, it's like anything, you're going to have the bad apples in there. But with archery, I've noticed that the bad apple doesn't typically ruin the bunch because everybody out there, just like you said, is very willing to help. Uh, most people, if if you ask, they'll help you out. They have no, no qualms with it. Most people just want to help you be a better shooter because they know if you enjoy it, you'll continue to come back. So, Absolutely. So, I think one of the things I want to cover with you is 
you know, we talked about um, archers helping archers out, and you're, you know, you're one of the people in San Diego that really helped me learn a lot about archery when I was starting, um, but I know one of the things that you feel is one of your, you know, stronger areas in archery is really a, a good executed shot and an unanticipated or a surprise shot. So what can you say or what can you tell me about your experience learning how to make that unanticipated shot, whether it's with a hinge or if you're able to do it with a thumb button? How did you get to, to that perfect executed shot release, I guess? Well, I think like all of us, I'm still trying, striving for perfection, but I can... <laughs> I can give you the basic rundown of so for me when I started shooting archery in San Diego, there was you know, the older group that was there. But at the time nobody that I knew of and you, you actually you spoke of Jason Null. He actually when I first started shooting, I think he was on deployment or something, so he he actually wasn't around. Um for several months, I think four or five months. But when I first started shooting, there was nobody that shot anything other than a index style wrist strap release. So, of course, that's what I started with. Um, and my biggest deal was I wanted to be better, so I started watching uh, different pros shoot, you know, Real Wild, Jesse Broadwater, all those guys. And the one thing that I noticed that they all had in common was they were shooting some type of handheld release, with the exception of a few. Um, and so it piqued my interest, and I really wanted to try it, but I didn't know anything about it, how to execute it, how to do anything. So I did as much research as I could um, online and through various resources and decided I was going to buy a four-finger hinge and try my luck with that. So you went straight to a hinge instead of a thumb button. Yeah, I went to a hinge. Just my thought process on that was um, a thumb button is still a trigger. So if I can punch an index trigger, then I can probably figure out how to punch a thumb button. <laughs> so I and I didn't. For me, I just didn't want to do that. And I'm not saying that anybody else shouldn't try a thumb button because. For some people, that's a calming thing to feel it under their thumb because there's not as much, not as many nerving endings in your thumb as there is in your index finger, so you can't feel as well. So that might work for some people. For me, I just knew that if I could activate it, then I probably would. So I went straight to a hinge. I ordered a four-finger hinge because I figured, well, worst-case scenario, if I don't like the four fingers, I'll cut a finger off and make it a three-finger. <laughs> I eventually did, by the way. <laughs> so I figured save a little money doing that. Yeah, but, just hacksaw it off. Yeah, just hack, hack it right off. Which, and I mean, and, you you know that they do sell releases that you can like exchange parts on it from three to four to two finger things like that, right? Yeah, but you got to understand those those have primarily come out in the last few years. Oh, yeah, that's a good time. point. So okay, well here's the other thing too about it. And I'll just tell you, I, the release that I wanted to shoot was the Trueball HT release. And the reason why I wanted to shoot that was because it had that hot tension. And this is not a plug for Trueball. I'm just telling you the reason why I want to shoot that release. 
is because it had that hot tension setting in it, so you could actually adjust the uh, setting on your moon. Whereas some of the other releases and release companies, you know, you it's kind of a very touchy deal where you you loosen the set screws and you got to try to move the moon with your finger um, and hope that you don't move it too far, it doesn't fall out of place. And I just wanted to alleviate that. So I wanted that feature of it. That And that release didn't come in a three or four finger option where you could just swap out, you know, the extensions on it. That's why I went with it. Got it. So anyhow, I, I got it. And the one thing that I read somewhere or heard from somebody, I'm not real sure where it came from, was I actually think it was from an interview with Real Wild. He was talking about people set their hinges too hot, meaning the least, you know, not not enough movement in the hinge. So what happens is, is they're drawing back. They lose that angle that you need in order mm-hmm. to draw it back, and then they end up punching themselves in the face. And that's the number one problem is they set it way too hot. So yeah. for me, I figured, well, I'll set it really cold, and if I can't get it to go off, I can always let down and start over. So I did that, and I think that was one of the big parts of success for me as far as a hinge goes. And what I've transferred into teaching other people to shoot a hinge is set it really cold so that you're not scared of it. You're not afraid to get a handful of it to draw the bow back because when you're shooting an index-style wrist strap release, all of that pressure is on your wrist, and you don't have to use a lot of your hand to pull the bow back. Mm-hmm. Well, with when you're holding any type of handheld release, be it a hinge, a thumb button, a resistance activated, it doesn't matter, you're holding all of that weight in your fingers. So, you know, people don't really know what that feels like unless you're used to shooting recurve. So anyhow, you set it really cold so you can get a hand a handful of the release and then draw the bow back and hit your anchor without the release firing. At that time, if you if it rotates and rotates and rotates and the shot just doesn't seem like it wants to go off, then it's not a big deal. You just rotate it back the opposite way, you let it down, you make the release a little bit hotter and you go again until you find that sweet spot for you. And so that's what I did. And then what I what I found from watching other videos was people tend to either pull through the release or relax through the release as far as a hinge goes. Huh. So then you talk to, like, Jesse. Jesse has a pretty static – Jesse Broadwater has a pretty static uh, release, he says, other than the fact he's just kind of relaxing and letting the release rotate in his hand. Whereas you look at like real wild and he's almost trying to break the bow in half. He's pulling so hard and he's kind of making a fist doing it. So for me, I wanted the more, I wanted a more static shot as far as pulling goes, because I think, you know, that bow is on, that bow can only be drawn so far. So what happens is it hits the back wall. And if you try to pull through it too much after that, you end up pulling yourself off of the target. So I wanted to have the tension in my back to hold the bow back and keep that pressure on it. But then at that time, I just wanted to relax my hand, primarily my index finger, until it went off. And I shot 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of arrows before I could get the feeling that I wanted to. And that's why I tell anybody who wants to shoot a hinge or wants to shoot a thumb button or a resistance activated release, a thousand to twelve hundred shots out of that release before you even get comfortable with it to the point where you can be making good shots and and consistent shots. So don't start don't switch to a release and then after a few, you know, sixty or seventy arrows go, it's not it's not for me. You haven't even figured it out at that point. You gotta figure it out. Your scores are gonna dip, but then eventually your scores are going to go beyond where they were when you were shooting your wrist strap release. And, you know, I think that's one of the, you talk about scores dipping, and you really have to have that patience. And I'll be honest, that's one of the reasons that I still, I still stuck with my thumb button is I don't think I ever actually put in the time that I really needed to to feel as comfortable with my hinge as I did with my thumb button. But, I mean, then again, you know me, like, you what was it you called me punchy, I think. Punchy. Yeah. Punchy. Yeah, you call me punchy because I do. I I do not have a surprise release. <laughs> so for me, you know, switching over to that hinge was hard. But I think I think you're right about it. You need literally over a thousand shots to really feel comfortable and know a release. For sure, and part of it, and it's very hard to do, and you kind of just touched on that now is leaving your safe your your safety release and I mean that in the sense the one that makes you feel good leaving that at home yeah and going going to a range or going to a tournament or whatever with whatever release you're trying to shoot now because if you have it in your pouch you're probably at some point going to get frustrated especially during during a tournament right we want to shoot our highest scores we want to do our best so if anything goes wrong, our first reaction is, well, it's got to be this release, and we throw it away and we grab our old trusty faithful one that we think is the best for us, and we start shooting with that again. And then that's when bad habits come back into play. Absolutely. Just like going back to what you're comfortable with. Um, so maybe maybe I'll I'll take some we'll learn a lesson from this, and when I get home, I'll take my thumb button out of my out of my release pouch and just shoot my hinge for a while and see how that goes. <laughs> right. And, you know, to, to touch on that real quick, first, the, the punchy thing, so there's this ideal shot process, right, that, that is spread throughout the archery community, and I think, generally speaking, it's a good way to do things, and that's the surprise release, right, the unanticipated shot. Mm-hmm. For the average person... That is what you want to achieve. But there are some people that it works, that the punchy, you know, the activated release or uh, command shooter, they call them, mm-hmm. that it works for very well. Tim Gillingham is one of them. You can see all yep. the best that that man's had. He's, a, he's very open about it, that he he likes to get on it when he wants to get on it type of thing. <laughs> but generally speaking, that doesn't work just because most people can't they can't separate the front half of their body being the bow arm and the back half of their body being the release hand they can't separate them so when they go to punch the release their front end moves with the back end and that's what 
causes the problems. If you can separate that to where you're still able to hold on the target and not move your front arm and then activate the release, you'll probably have a lot of success. It's just I wouldn't recommend it because it doesn't work for a majority of the population. Yeah, I I agree. And it's, again, as all things archery, a matter of finding what works for you. Um, but you got to put the time in and actually try all the different options to really understand if there is a better option than what you're doing now. For sure. For sure. Well, I think... Go back to... Go ahead. I was just going to say that goes back to equipment. That goes back to form. Um, You know, find a bow that fits you and don't be too eager to, you know, jump up there and poundage low panels so you're comfortable so you can work on your form. Um, don't overshoot too much because then you start fatiguing and getting bad habits. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that goes to that, but do what works for you. Find good form and shoot good form, but whatever that is for you. So, yeah. you know, you can look at the different styles of shooters that have success today. Jesse's style is much different than Rio's, is much different than Levi's, or any of the top shooters, you could sit there and line them all up at full draw, and they all look different. they all following the same basic concept of form and archery, but they have their own little things that they do to make it work for them. And, I mean, you look at, like, Paige Gore, one of the top female shooters out there. She's out there, you know, beating the men pretty frequently. And she was a rock star with her, her finger trigger, you know, her wrist release finger trigger. Right. Like, yeah. so you have you, you have the archers out there that will, they will swear their life on it and say there's no better release than a hinge with a surprise shot. But then you've got people like Paige, you know, shooting that finger wrist release and kicking ass with it. You've got people, like you said, like Tim, who are out there punching or command-style shooting, also doing amazing. So it's really just what works for you. Absolutely, absolutely. And and Paige even, you know, she talked about that she went to a thumb button for a while and just it just wasn't as good for her as the, the indexes. And the thing that she says is she still kind of acts activates that release even though it's a an index finger wrist style you know wrist strap style release she's still pulling with her back to keep the bow back and Mm -hmm. you know keep that keep that pressure maintained and then her fingers on the trigger and she just really adding just enough pressure with her back and her finger to get the release to break she's not so much commanding it as like Tim is. Tim is just, you straight up watch him and he's getting it off when he wants it to go. Yep. He's, she's more patient with it and kind of works with the shot a little more. So I, that's what I encourage people. If you are going to shoot an index style release, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Just try to shoot it to where it's more consistent and you're letting, the, the biggest thing I say in archery is let the shot happen. Don't make it happen. And if you can do that, regardless of what style of release that you shoot, you're you're going to be better off, I think. I agree 100%. And I guess I I have one last question I thought of um, before we before we end this this episode. But um, 
when you're when you're working on the, you know, we talked about the thousand shots, thousand plus shots to really get comfortable. When you're in that first stage of of feeling out a new release or a new piece of equipment, do you do you blank bail for those, you know, thousand shots, or do you actually go shoot at targets, tournaments, things like that, or what do you feel is the best way to really get comfortable with something without putting too much stress on on yourself to to be perfect with the equipment right away? Well, as much as it's probably good to go blank bell, blank bell a thousand shots, I just don't have the patience to do that. <laughs> but I think definitely starting out, um, you you should, at least until you get the feel of the release, and I mean just where it's firing, how much pressure, say it's a thumb button, how much pressure you can put on the thumb before it goes off or a hinge, you know, how much it has to rotate before it gets to the click or if no click before it fires. Um, so that may be 10 shots blank bell or that may be 100 shots until you get to feel comfortable with that, whatever it is. And I think, so your first your first switch is always the hardest, leaving the index finger, going to either a thumb button, a hinge, or a resistance activated release, that's always the hardest switch. After that, you know, once you kind of, and I'm not going to say mastered, but once you become very familiar with another style release, it makes more sense when you try to switch over. Say you go from your index to a, a thumb button. Well, mm-hmm. then switching from a thumb button over to a hinge is not as difficult because you understand the concepts of it already. Um you understand that you still got to hold it with your hand. You got to that you how you how you have to anchor, which is typically different than you anchor with a a wrist strap. Um, all all of those type concepts. So generally speaking, if I try out a new release, I'll get up close. That way, I get up close to a bell. That way, I know I'm not going to miss or fling an arrow somewhere, you know, where it shouldn't be. I'll shoot a few shots, kind of get the release set to where. I want it to where it feels good, to where it's firing where I think it should. And then I'll step over maybe 20, 30 yards and shoot some shots. And then usually there's another adjustment period because now you're putting aiming into the scenario, whereas before you were just kind of letting the bow point and shooting the release. So readjust the, the release and then go out and shoot some you know, shoot some targets for score or just, you know, shoot some groups and see how it's doing for you. If at any time throughout that process you start to see some type of anticipation setting in, then stop, go back over to a blank bell, no target on it, Uh, you know, get up close to where you know you can't miss and close your eyes and shoot some shots, just feeling the release, feeling the pulling motion with your back or the relaxing motion in your hand, whatever it is, feel it so that it's burnt into your mind and your muscles and and get that feeling to where it's almost second nature and then step over and try to shoot on paper again. Just don't rush it. That's the biggest thing. Don't try to I, – I won't tell you, when I switched over to a hinge – I told you nobody had one. Nobody, I didn't. I never shot one. Mm-hmm. It came in the mail on Saturday, 
I went out that morning and shot it, and on Sunday I shot a 3D with it. <laughs> so, and trust me, the scores were terrible. But in my mind, oh, it was, it, was, it was nasty. But in my mind, I told myself, I'm not out here to try to break any records today. All I'm out here to do is try to learn how to shoot this release. And the reason why I wanted to do it that way, because I didn't care about score, and also because the angles that you shoot during 3D is much different when you're shooting a hinge uh, opposed to flat ground. So flat ground, you know, it'll go off perfect, but you start aiming uphill and downhill with a hinge, and the mechanics change, and how you have to get the release to roll in your hand changes. So mm-hmm. I just figured if you're going to be a bear, you might as well be a grizzly. Get out there and do it, you know? <laughs> yep. Well, I guess I don't really have any other questions, so I just want to say thanks for getting on the show and talking unmarked 3D and, and selecting and shooting a new a new release and proper, I guess, the, the steps you take to get used to a release and, and get... Uh, set up with a new piece of equipment. Um, I'm glad we were able to have you on, and I'm glad we could catch up after not seeing you for a while. Yeah, I appreciate it. And if anybody's got questions, they can find me on social media. Uh, How about in Vegas? Will you be in Vegas? I won't be in Vegas this year. Possibly Reading, though. I'm going to try to make it to Reading. But okay. I'm not going to make it. Okay, well, then we'll find you in in Reading. Yeah, find me in Reading, or if you're in Maryland and you see me out and about, feel free to ask. If not, I'm on social media. My Instagram is BotechMan26, and my Facebook is Jeff L. Harris or Jeff L. Harris Botech Pro Staff. That's where they awesome. find it. Well, thanks so much, Jeff, and, and we'll have to maybe have you back on the show again another time to talk talk in more detail about maybe tuning or, or your specific setup or something like that. Sounds like a plan. I appreciate you having me on. All right. I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye.